It's a pleasure to open up a new series this morning. We're going to begin a series through 1 Corinthians. This is a wonderful book and particularly appropriate for our particular point in the process of uh, growing and re relaunching our church. And so uh, we're going to find many good things coming from this particular epistle from the Apostle Paul. And so I'd like to begin by reading our key text, which is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and verses 1 through 3. Would you like to stand with me for the reading of God's Word? Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, and Sothenes, our brother, to the church of God which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for the goodness, the riches of your word. We thank you for this letter from our dear brother Paul as he uh, begins the adventure of overseeing the establishment and the gathering of the church which is in Corinth in around the year 50 A.D. Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word, things that have always been there. Lord, we ask to see nothing new, but only to see what has always been there, and then to bring that into our own lives, our own experience, as we walk with you together as the church of God, which is in Salem. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I remember when I was young, I always liked the way that this phrase fell, an epistle from an apostle. <laughs> Just sounds so cool. An epistle from an apostle. The apostle wrote the epistle. Which epistle did the apostle write? He, the, the apostle wrote the epistle to the Corinthians. And so here we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 1. Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God. So what is an apostle? Well, there are two definitions that both of which are biblical. From the Greek apostolos, which means simply messenger, and from the apostelen, which means to send forth, we get our word apostle. And an apostle in the New Testament was a man who had been chosen by God to bear personal witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That was an important qualifying uh, piece there. Uh, not everyone who was sent to be a missionary was an apostle in this sense. But there's a second definition which 
we do see in our day, and that is the first successful Christian missionary in a country or to a particular people. And Paul also qualifies by this standard because we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 2 where he writes to the Corinthians, If I am not an apostle to others, yet doubtless I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Paul is saying, you know, I have the credentials, I have the qualifications of a, an apostle, just like all of the other true apostles. However, I also have the specific relationship to you there in Corinth because I am the one that God used to introduce the gospel to you. And he will refer in this letter to others who built upon the foundation that he had laid, specifically Apollos. He says, I planted, Apollos watered what I planted, and God gave the increase, and that is you, the church of God, which is in Corinth. So Paul qualifies by both of these, uh, and uh, we see the experience of Paul spelled out specifically in this letter. For we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning at verse 3, he writes, For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, that would be Peter, and then by the twelve, and then, after that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present. But some have fallen asleep. Some have died and gone to be with the Lord. After that, he was seen by James, and then by all the apostles. And then last of all, he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. So Paul sees himself uh, as the, uh, the last of the apostles, sees himself as being one who uh, was born like a, a late-term baby being born. Uh, and so he makes reference to these others who have actually seen Jesus Christ alive, risen from the dead after his crucifixion, after his resurrection from the grave. So Paul was the last man to see the resurrected Christ and the last man added who would actually be writing scripture. So we don't see others writing scripture after the apostle Paul uh, other than the apostles themselves. There was nobody added to that number. Now, you notice in the language of this passage that the Lord Jesus was seen by over 500 brethren at once. Now that would mean that of those 500, there could have been some who were identified and sent out and designated as apostles. Uh, and that's why we see this reference here toward the end. He was seen by James and then by all the apostles. Now that would be redundant if it was referring to the 12 up above. So you have the 12 who would be including Matthias who was added in the first chapter of Acts uh, to replace Judas Iscariot who had died, committed suicide 
and was now no longer an apostle. And so we have the 12 restored uh, under Peter's leadership there in the first Corinthians, or first uh, chapter of Acts. So there, there's the potential for a lot of apostles to be running around at this time, okay? If we go by that first definition, those who have actually seen Jesus Christ raised from the dead. Now, the apostle Paul saw Christ raised from the dead when he appeared to him on the road to Damascus. You recall, Paul is on his way uh, to Jericho, uh, and, uh, and on, the, on that trip, no, it was not Jericho, it was Damascus. On his way to Damascus, Jesus appears to him, blinding light, Paul falls off of his uh, donkey, and uh, he says, who are you, Lord? And Jesus says, I am Jesus Christ, whom you are persecuting. Now, the insight that Paul received at that point is, when you persecute Christians, you're persecuting Christ. This is a kind of a first clue as to the revelation of the body of Christ, that we are all parts of the body of Christ. You touch a Christian, you're touching Christ. Because he is claiming all of those who trusted in him as members of his body. But Jesus is there. Uh, Paul saw Jesus Christ risen from the dead. He didn't just have a vision. It wasn't a dream. It was an actual physical sighting of our Lord. And that gave Paul this qualification of being, last of all, he was seen by me as one born out of due time. So Paul was not the last person to be counted in church history as a missionary apostle, though, to a people group. We have many who qualify under that second definition, both men and women, by the way. And so we see, for instance, in our modern missionary lineup, now I could have covered 30 or 40 slides with this, and so I decided to just fill one slide. But we have William Carey, missionary to India. He was the father of modern missions. Uh, He was born in 1761, died in 1834. Uh, William Carey was was the one who went to the Presbyterian Church and said, I think we need to take this Great Commission seriously. And they said, good old Presbyterians, they said, God will save the pagans in his own time and his own way, Mr. Carey. We doesn't need you to help. (laughs) like, let's all just ignore the Great Commission. William Carey went anyway, and he became the father of modern missions. Now, Adoniram Judson, 1788 to 1850, was a Baptist missionary to Burma, which is now Myanmar. And so he was a great missionary as well. And we could see these men as being like an apostle in the sense that they're introducing Christianity to a, a continent or to a nation or to a people group. Uh, that had not yet been reached. Then we have David Livingston, a medical missionary to Africa, various nations in Africa, 1813 to 1873. Mary Slessor, following in his footsteps as a missionary to the nations of Africa, 1848 to 1915. And she was inspired by David Livingston's example. Now, Hudson Taylor, 1832 to 1905, he served for more than 50 years in China. Uh, A great, great missionary 
you could say, apostolic missionary. Now, these men and women, they are not writing scripture. I want you to note that they are not apostles in the sense that the twelve were, or that those who uh, wrote in the original uh, first century there after Christ's ascension into heaven, uh, they are not writing scripture. No apostles today are adding to scripture. Uh, If you read the last few lines of the book of Revelation, you'd better not be writing anything and trying to add it to scripture or the plagues of the Revelation will be added to you. And so that's not a good idea. Now, Amy Carmichael, 1867 to 1951. I was born in 1952. So this is just before I was born. Missionary to India, 56 years in India. Never took a break, never took a vacation home. Just stayed and worked with the orphans there in India. Eric Liddell, uh, or Little, uh, 1902 to 1945. He's famous for the uh, Chariots of Fire movie. Primarily focuses on his athletic abilities, but also his testimony to not run on the Sabbath day, on Sunday. And so he was a missionary to China, born to missionary parents, and he died in China during the communist takeover of China. We have Bruce Olson, uh, the book Brutsko. If you haven't read that, I highly recommend it. Example of a young man who just took God at his word and walked into the jungle at the age of 19. The first thing that happened to him, he was shot full of arrows, laid in a hammock for days or weeks. The man who was assigned to take care of him until he died, and they did expect him to die, was his first convert. That one convert, went to a gathering of the tribes in that area of uh, Venezuela where they would sing their songs to one another and tell their stories. And that one uh, man who had been the nurse and taking care of Bruce Olson led the entire tribe to Christ. And this tribe today is a a major uh, force for Christ in Venezuela and the surrounding nations there in South America. One man, 19, walks into the... No, you got to be willing to get shot to do that kind of thing, okay? But he has a remarkable story. If you read the book Bruchko, you'll see what an adventure that was. And uh, I, I highly admire Bruce Olson. Jim Elliott. Jim Elliott died trying to reach the Aka Indians in Ecuador, along with uh, five other men, Uh, I could have added all five of them, but I just chose him as the representative. Uh, They went to reach a group that had been unreached, and they were killed in the process. But Elizabeth Elliot, uh, his his widow, went back to the same village with her daughter and reached that tribe for Christ and lived with them. Uh, It was one funny story is when they came back to the United States and Uh, Elizabeth Elliot's daughter was with her about six years old and she looked around and she says, Mommy, they're all wearing clothes. So we have Darlene Deibler, uh, 1917 to 1904. She was a, she and her husband were missionaries to the Paupel New Guinea tribes and uh, did a great work there. She did a great work as a widow after her husband had died earlier on in the 1950s. So these are people just like you. 
people who responded to God's call. They, they were reading their Bibles one day and they suddenly realized that these passages about go to all the world and preach the gospel, go and make disciples of all nations, that this is talking to them. And so we need to be open to that very real possibility that God could put his hand on your shoulder, so to speak, that the Holy Spirit could touch your heart and say, I want you to serve in this way, in these places that have yet to hear the gospel, yet to believe the gospel. One of my personal heroes is John Piper. He has said many times that he wanted to go to missions. That's what he wanted to do. And God made it clear to him, no, I want you to stay where you are. I want you to equip men. And I will take those men that I've chosen to these foreign fields. But you do what you have been assigned. And that is to make a rallying cry for men and women to rise up and go and take the gospel to the nations. So not everyone goes, but everyone has a part to play in the lives of those who do go in supporting those missions. Now the next phrase that we see in this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verses 1 through 3, Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother. So who is Sosthenes? Well, Sosthenes was the chief ruler of the synagogue in Corinth, and he became one of the first Christians in that city. He had already taken a beating for the cause of Christ, as we're going to see uh, in more detail in a moment, but I'll just quote the initial passage here in Acts chapter 18 and verse 17, and then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. That's the bima there in Corinth, the, the seat of uh, civil law. So Sosthenes may also have been Paul's uh, nomensis, which is a scribe, a, like a secretary, someone who does the actual handwriting, uh, because we see at the end of Paul's epistle uh, here, he says, the salutation with my own hand, Paul's. So he signed the letter, but he didn't write the letter out. A secretary, someone wrote it. It may have been Sosthenes, we don't know, but somebody was doing the handwriting while Paul signed it at the end. Now, in any case, Sosthenes was a brother to Paul in Christ. He makes that clear in his introduction. Sosthenes, our brother. But then we have to deal with this question. What is a church? Okay. The, to the church of God, which is at Corinth. It doesn't say to the Corinthian church. It doesn't say to the Baptist church. It doesn't say to the Presbyterian church. He says, to the church of God, which is at Corinth. Now, denominations have taken that phrase, church of God, and they have claimed it, and claimed to be the church of God. And, uh, which is kind of funny, because that usually happened in around the 1800s. Uh, so, you, you've got this confusion. Church of Christ is another one. You know, they have 
jokes about how you have to tiptoe past certain areas of heaven because the Church of Christ thinks they're the only ones who are there. So these are uh, what we would call attitudinal heresies. You know, they're not doctrinal heresies in a sense. They're attitudinal heresies heresies that you would think that your particular group or denomination or organization were the only ones who were uh, identified as the church of God. But there was in Corinth a church of God. So what is a church? A New Testament church is an assembly. It's a gathering. You see that in some of the names of churches, the assembly of God. There's a church in Portland called the gathering. And, and that's what it, the Ecclesia uh, is all about, just a gathering. You had Ecclesia in the secular context of people assembling, like a legislature would assemble. And so in the New Testament, the, the church is an assembly of those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus. That means they have been set apart by God for a special purpose, to be the people of God. They are called to be saints. The phrasing here would suggest that they're in a process. They're called to be saints. In one sense, they are saints. They've been set aside by God. But they're in the process of becoming what they are. And that is separated from the sins of the world around them. And so they're called to be saints. A people called to remain set apart. Not just be set apart momentarily, but to remain set apart for God's special purpose in their lives. Which requires us to do what the writer of to the Hebrews says, to pursue holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. So holiness is not something that you just get it and now you've got it and there's nothing left to do. There's a pursuit of holiness. There's, a, there's always a farther in and a farther up in the kingdom of God, where you get closer and closer to being like Christ. And we know as, uh, as we read in, in John's epistle, that when we see him as he is, we will be like him. There's a finishing process there. Some are closer than others, but when we all see him as he is, we will be like him. And the sanctifying process will be completed. That's why we use the term progressive sanctification rather than perfection. We are constantly improving, but we still have a ways to go. Some of us have a long ways to go. I have a long ways to go. But I am moving forward, fortunately, by God's grace. We pursue holiness. And notice it says, along with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ. What's Paul saying here? He's saying you're not alone in this. You're not the only ones. You Corinthian Christians, you, you are not the only church. You are the church which is in Corinth. There is another church which is in Ephesus. There's another one which is in Rome. There's another one which is in Jerusalem and in Damascus and in Thessalonica and in Philippi. You are not alone. You are the church of God, which is at Corinth, the gathering in Corinth, along with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ. 
You're part of a larger body of Christ. You have brothers and sisters in Christ whom you've never met, but they're out there. And he wants the Corinthian Christians to understand that this is much bigger than just their little group there in Corinth. And so these are those who, in prayer and in praise, are trusting in God to answer with his mighty power the requests and the exaltation that they offer to God. You're not in this alone. You're part of something much greater. And notice this last phrase, our Lord, both theirs and ours. He's not just your Lord. And he's not just their Lord. He is our Lord, both theirs and ours. We are all worshiping the same Lord Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all and Lord over all. Now, Gracious Cross Reformed Church is all of these things. So we can say we are the church of God, which is at Salem. Are we the only church in Salem? No. But we are a church, a gathering of believers in Christ in Salem. And so we can read this epistle. We can study this letter expecting to hear the Apostle Paul give us instruction that we need to hear. It's not just written to them in 50 AD. He's writing to a church in a city that needs this instruction. And he adds this phrase, which is in Corinth. Now I'd like to kind of do a little parenthetical Bible reading for you. And I'm going to try to discipline myself not to comment on what I read, because if I did, we could have several sermons here uh, very quickly. So here we go, Acts chapter 18 and verse 1. This is the story of, I'm going to use the word the gathering of the church rather than the planting of the church. Uh, Paul says, uh, you know, I sowed that seed, Apollos watered, okay, but God gave the increase. So we could use the word planting the church there, but I think sometimes planting puts a little bit too much emphasis in the wrong spot, because as we see in this story, there's a process of gathering, gathering the people of God out of the community there in Corinth. And so we read, after these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome. And he came to them. So, because he was of the same trade, Paul was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for by occupation they were tent makers. So the Apostle Paul had the trade of a tent maker. And that is what he turned to when he needed to support himself and his, uh, his team as they were going around uh, planting and gathering churches uh, in the area there. And so when you hear that somebody says, well, I'm a tent making missionary, it means I'm self-supported by my work rather than being supported by uh, churches and others 
in some other part of the world. And that's often very helpful because some countries don't want foreign missionaries supported by uh, some other country. It uh, feels a little bit too much like an agent of some sort, and they don't like that. So being self-supported can be a very good thing. And so it says, so he stayed with them. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. So during this time, Paul's working, what, five, six days a week? And then on the Sabbath, he's witnessing to the Jews and the Greeks. Those would be the Greeks who are uh, believers in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, I'm commenting too much. Let's keep going. When When Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia... Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. But when they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said to them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he departed from there and entered the house of a certain man named Justice, who worshipped God, whose house was next door, to the synagogue. Handy, right? Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed and were baptized. So it's all happening. Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. Do not be afraid, but speak and do not keep silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you. For I have many people in this city. And he continued there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. When Gallio, who was proconsul of Achaia, Achaia, the Jews in in one accord rose up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat saying, this fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. And when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes, O Jews, there would be reason why I should bear with you. But if it is a matter or question of words and names and of your own law, Look to it yourselves, for I do not want to be a judge of such matters. And he drove them from the judgment seat. And then we see here, Then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. But Gallio took no notice of these things, so Paul still remained a good while. Then he took leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria. And Priscilla and Aquila were with him. So this is how the church of God, which is in Corinth, was gathered by the Apostle Paul. This is what he's referring to when he says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. There's a point we see in the next few chapters where Apollos uh, is actually, (laughs) has his doctrine improved by Aquila and Priscilla, And then he makes his way over to Corinth to this baby church and he begins teaching and preaching there and he's mighty in the scriptures, we're told. So, what was it like to live in Corinth 
in 50 AD, what would you expect to see? By 50 AD, when Paul visited Corinth, it was the most beautiful, modern, and industrious city of its size in all of Greece. So this is a very, very successful and prosperous city. Its theater, which was built in the fifth century, 500 years before Paul arrived, could seat over 14,000 people. It was a very famous theater. Corinth's public marketplace, called the Agora, the Forum, was larger than any in Rome. So this is a bigger, they had a bigger mall than Rome, okay? Uh, more vendors, more merchants. It was a city of rich sailors and wealthy merchants who liked to spend their money. And so it was prosperous. You pretty much you could spit and it would start a new business, okay? Uh, everybody was buying. It was a, a very, very healthy economy. In Corinth, you could find all the cults of all the gods of Egypt, Rome, and Greece. Similar to Athens in the sense that they had idols everywhere. Uh, you could find pretty much anything you're looking for. The famous temple of Aphrodite, of the goddess of love, had over a thousand cult prostitutes. And they would come down off of the hill and into the city, and that's how they would proselytize for their goddess, their religion. They would recruit new worshipers by that means. The name Corinth was synonymous with immorality. But the phrase a Corinthian lass was not a good, was not a good thing. Uh, it was considered to be extremely immoral. The temple of Poseidon, Poseidon? How do you pronounce that, Brian? Poseidon? Poseidon, okay. The temple of Poseidon, he was the ruler of the sea, and Corinth was dependent upon the sea for its commercial life. It was a, in fact, you would drag your boats across the isthmus uh, from one side to the other in order to cut off the long voyage, which often was treacherous during certain seasons. And so rather than going down around the tip, they would drag their boats on logs, the rolling logs under the, you know, had one group of slaves grabbing this log and bringing it over here and putting it in front of the boat. And then they'd roll it a little farther and they'd take this one and they'd move it over to the front of the boat and they'd move it. Like, kind of like when you, you know, when you're taking a, a canoe down, a big canoe down a river, and you have to go over certain parts of land because of the rapids. Well, that's what they were doing. They were dragging their boat across the isthmus. But this town was dependent upon the, uh, the trade that came by means of the sea. Now, on the hill overlooking Corinth, there was also the ruins of the Temple of Apollo, which had been there for a long, long time, all the way back into ancient Greece. So Corinth was kind of like New York City, Mumbai in India, and Las Vegas all rolled into one. Okay, So we're talking about money and religion and immorality, and that was the, the toxic brew that made up the city of Corinth. So how might this city of Corinth have affected Paul's letter? This is kind of an interesting thing to look at. I always find this intriguing. Um, 
The Isthmus Games, the Isthmian Games, were the second in importance only to the Olympics. And they were held every other year in honor of Poseidon on the Isthmus of Corinth. And it's possible that Paul was present at one of these events. Now notice in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 24, Paul writes, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Can you imagine Paul observing the athletes and their discipline and the way they prepared, you know, how their whole lives were organized around this attempt to win in these uh, Isthmi, Isthmian, I can't say that, Isthmian games. Uh, that's what happens when you don't pay attention in school. Okay. Now, the victor's crown at the Isthmian games was made, <laughs> I could not believe this when I, wilted celery. Wilted celery was used to create the crown at the games. And so, take note of Paul's reference in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 25. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown. Wilted celery. But we, for an imperishable crown. We're not running this race to get wilted celery. We're running this race for an eternal crown of glory in Christ. Now Corinth also had light industry. Uh, they were manufacturing highly prized bronze works which included highly polished mirrors. And so you note Paul's reference to seeing in a glass darkly in 1 Corinthians 13:12 and then again in 2 Corinthians 3:18. So if you're looking into a bronze mirror, it's going to be a dark image because bronze is dark, right? And so we hear it's not so much a glass in the sense of, you know, actual poured glass or stained glass. It was probably a, a bronze mirror, which would be referred to as a, a looking glass. Now, Paul begins this with a statement, grace to you and peace. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 3, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So, we have a typo there, we'll ignore. Grace to you, that means receive more of the unmerited favor of God. That's what grace is, the unmerited favor of God. And peace. Let all internal and external strife and conflict cease. You know, the essence of peace is when everything and everyone takes their place and is no longer jostling to have someone else's place. Now think about that in terms of how we get along with others. We need to be content in the place where God has placed us. And we need to recognize the place that others have been given in his purpose, in his plan, in the body. Not everyone is an eye. Not everyone is a hand. Not everyone is a foot. But we all have our place in the body of Christ. And so for God's peace 
to come into our lives, we recognize that and we are content in the place that God has, has put us. Now, think about that internally. How much of your life is uh, a storm going on inside where you're constantly not at peace, where you're always anxious about this or that, where you're wishing, you know, I think one of the curses of modern life is that no matter what you're doing, you feel like you ought to be doing something else. Right? It's like there's not enough hours in the day, not enough days in the week. No matter what you're doing, you can't be content because you feel like you ought to be doing something else. Well, that is an internal conflict. And the way to have peace is to rest in the fact that you have enough time to do what God has given you to do And you simply take it one day at a time. Jesus said, take no thought for tomorrow. Don't try to live in the future. Don't try to dwell on the past. Just be in the moment you're in right now and do what's pleasing to the Lord now, in this moment. And God will give you peace internally, a sweet contentment that is no longer struggling to do or to be more than what you are in that moment. And if you just take that one step at a time, you will rise to higher and higher levels of effectiveness in God's purpose. But there's nothing gained by worrying about the past or worrying about the future. Now, this is a grace and peace that comes from God our Father. This is something only the believing Christian can claim. God is our Father in heaven. This is from the God to whom you have been reconciled and into whose family you have now been adopted. You are part of the family. He will never reject you. He will never kick you out. But he will raise you. He will train you. He will discipline you. And so we receive this grace and peace from God as our Father. This is that family room scene that now we enjoy because we have come through the judgment scene and Christ is our Savior. He has paid our debt. We have no condemnation in Christ Jesus. We're now members of the family of God. Jesus Christ is not only our Lord, he is also our older brother. And we are all called to grow up and be more and more like our older brother, Jesus. And the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this is a long sentence, but I love to, I love to bring... Paul would do this, and so I'm going to just imitate Paul here. He'd have these long run-on sentences, you know. So here's what I want to say. This Jesus Christ is the one who is sovereign over all of reality and from whom you may now enjoy all the benefits of his will in every area of your lives simply by walking in the obedience of your faith in his goodness and his wisdom and his love. He's the one that we worship. This is the one that we worship, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And in order for you to get the benefits of Jesus in your life, 
You have to acknowledge him as Lord. That's another way of saying he's the boss. Okay? He's the one in charge. God doesn't want you to live your life by the lights of your own personal opinions. He doesn't want you to live your life uh, under the limited resources of your own intelligence, your own wisdom, your own, your own anything. God wants you to live in the abundance of his love, his wisdom, his goodness. That's what it means when Jesus is Lord. Every area of your life becomes a display of his competence rather than a display of your incompetence. And that's why he gets all the glory. It wouldn't work any other way. If it's your competence on display, then you would get the glory if there's any, any competence at all. But there's not. And so we rest in his lordship. And by doing so, we enjoy the grace and the peace from God our Father. Because it all comes to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. And gracious cross reformed church enjoys all of these blessings as well. So why does this, la- this letter, this epistle from this apostle, matter to us today? Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours, grace to you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Why does this matter? Because Gracious Cross is a church, just like the church of God in Corinth. We need this letter just as much as they did. And so, how are we like the Christians in Corinth? To be specific, the same Apostle Paul who wrote to the Church of God, which is in Corinth, was also writing this letter to us here today. We also have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. We also are called to be saints by pursuing holiness, as Paul instructs us to in this letter. We also are one of many local churches around the world who call upon the name of the Lord in both prayer and in praise, and we also have been reconciled to the same God as our Heavenly Father under the sovereign lordship of our same older brother, Jesus Christ, in the family of God. That's why this letter matters to us, because we have all of these things just as they did. Gracious Cross is just another church, like the Church of God in Corinth. And so, I'm going to plead with you now, okay? I'm going to plead with you as we go through this new series in 1 Corinthians. I'm pleading with you to ask God to help you see our church in the church of God, which was in Corinth. To see the similarities, to see the, the, the various needs and to see the same benefits that they enjoy. I'm pleading with you to ask God to help you see yourself 
in the people that we will meet in this letter. There'll be various personalities that come to the fore. I want you to stop and see how you interface with them and what the similarities, what the differences are. And I want you to allow the Holy Spirit to convict you of your sin and equip you for your service and comfort you in your relationship to God through Jesus Christ. If we'll take that approach, and I would encourage you to read the, the epistle to the Corinthians, the first epistle. You know, if you like, read the second epistle as well. But just get into a pattern of reading this book and enjoying letting the Word of God rinse you, flow over you, cleanse you. And then as we get to each passage, as we open up each passage and, and go deep and try to understand what the context was and, and what the significance is both to them and to us, that you already be primed and ready. You know, you're already, you know, be like that, that uh, gooseneck pump that you have to pour a little water in before you start pumping in order to get anything to come out. Well, you go ahead and start pouring that water in the pump and I'll do my best to, to give you a gusher when the time comes. And so, in closing, let us respond to God. Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 15 tells us, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Let's take that word to heart and, and ask God, What are you saying to me now? How can I respond to you now? James tells us, If anyone is suffering, let him pray. We want to pray with you. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. We want to rejoice with you. We're commanded to do that. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much.